Well, good morning. Welcome to Risen Church. My name is John Allen. I want to kick this off with one of my favorite call and response uh, sort of greetings. It's, a, again, an ancient church greeting. It goes uh, way, way, way back to the early church. And so if I were to say, he is risen, then you would say, he is risen indeed. love it. Okay, here we go. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. And that changes everything. The resurrection changes absolutely everything. But how? Why? How? The short answer is simply that we've been given access to God. That's what the resurrection does. It gives you access to the creator of the universe. Intimate access to him through what Jesus did for us at the cross and through the resurrection because he loves and delights in us. That's why. Why did he do it? Why did Jesus die on the cross and rise from the grave? Like, it's really easy to focus on what he did for us at the cross, right? But it's it's also easy to miss the significance of the resurrection. Like, we get the cross, I think, sometimes, and we miss the resurrection. See, at the cross, he paid for our sins. He paid for our failures. In a world where your sins and failures are right in front of you, you need the cross. Amen? That's the thing that demands punishment and justice and, and, and sin is, is what created distance between humanity and God. And so at the cross, he paid for that sin. But through the resurrection, Jesus paved the way to eternal life. And not just an eternal life that starts one day when we die. Or one day in some distant future when Jesus physically returns to the earth, which I can't wait for. Right? That's coming. That's when we're all physically resurrected from the dead. It's powerful. We'll talk a little bit about that. But I'm talking about the resurrection that grants us access to God Almighty now. Today. I'm talking about the resurrection that identifies and sets God's grace-bought, spirit-filled believers, his people, apart from the rest of the world and awakens us with the purpose that transcends anything that this fallen world could ever offer us. So a lot of people tend to focus on what our sin deserves, which is true, it's good, right? But in doing so, sometimes you can miss or ignore what the resurrection provides. So the point of the cross and resurrection wasn't just to pay for your sin. It was to provide access to the intimate presence of God. That's true Christianity. If you leave out the cross, though, see, this has got it both ways. If you leave out the cross, sometimes people do this. They leave out the cross, and they just kind of jump, right, to, to, like, the intimacy and the joy part. And they don't, there's no sin, there's no need for repentance. It's just like, God loves you, joyful, let's go, right? That's a false gospel. You don't get the joy and the access and the intimacy without the cross, See, there's a two, there's two ways this gets twisted. Sin is real, and in order, to receive, in order to receive the power of the resurrection, confession and repentance are required. Okay? If it's not there, if you're just pretending, and there's an insecurity about that relationship you have with God. But there's another half-truth floating around out there, and that, that other half-gospel that leaves out The full truth is that which leaves out the resurrection. It's the gospel that says Jesus died for your sins. That's it. Instead of Jesus died for your sins so that, say so that, you could have eternal life with him that starts now. So this morning we're going to talk about what it means to be risen in Christ. And not just what it means, but what it looks like. Okay? So we're going to talk about what it looks like to live in the abundant life that Jesus offers those who have been granted intimate, 
relational access to the King of glory by grace through faith in Christ right now in this life. So this morning we're going to talk about what it looks like to walk in the newness of life and enjoy God. Say, enjoy God. Thank you, I will. So turn with me to Colossians 3. We're going to look at verse 1 through 4. And we're going to read through this passage, then we're going to drop back and break it down together, okay? So Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. We're continuing in our series through the book of Colossians called Firmly Established. So Colossians 3, verse 1 through 4. Here we go, verse 1. It says this. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay, so we've got one premise, two imperatives, and an eternal hope. Okay, this is going to function as our sort of framework for the rest of our time. So we're going to break it down by answering three questions. The first question is, what does being risen with Christ mean? Okay, so that's that's the premise. You're risen with Christ. Two, What are we to seek and set our minds on? Those are the two imperatives or or commands in a sense. And then finally, we're going to close by answering what does it look like to enjoy God in this life and in the next? So here's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else this morning, this is what I want you to get. You ready? To truly enjoy life, you must truly enjoy Jesus. To truly enjoy life, you must truly enjoy Jesus. You see, enjoying God isn't about just a way of life or a mindset. It's about the way, the truth, and the life who is a person. Jesus is life. There are a lot of good things that God gives us. A lot of beautiful, amazing gifts, right? A lot of good things. God gives us good things like sports. He gives us good things like food. Good careers, comfort. Even, he even gives us the law. The law of God. His rules. His regulations. They are good. Right? His, his, these are things that are designed and given for our good. But hear me, sports aren't life. Food isn't life. Some of you are like, well, if I don't eat, then I die. There's a reason Jesus fasts and says that I don't live by bread alone. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but from every word that comes down from the Father. Food isn't life. Your career isn't life. The law of God. Shocker, it's not life. Rules and regulations are not life. Jesus is life. Money, comfort, success, fun experiences, friendship, marriage, sex, good waves, good parties, nice cars, home, accolade, family, acceptance, approval, financial security, good things, none of it's life. None of that is life. Jesus is life. And outside of Christ, it's all really easily twisted into this unsatisfying thing. But in Christ... In Christ, all of the things that I just mentioned are actually amazing conduits of experiencing the substance of who he is. Because it's all about Jesus. In Christ, everything from your career to the law of God and your spouse becomes good gifts that help us experience abundant life in him. But watch out. You gotta watch out. This fallen world will twist that mess. Every single thing I mentioned can easily get twisted by this world and trick you into thinking that those things are ultimate things, which is why Paul tells us to be so intentional here in Colossians 3. 
So let's dive in. Verse 1, let's drop back and look at what he's talking about here. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ. So what's the, the, the first question, right? Like, what does it mean to be risen with Christ? This isn't just a metaphor for positive living. Some people say that. That's wrong. Okay? This, isn't, it, it, this is the fundamental reality for anyone who has received grace by faith in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel that God became a man and he lived the life we could not live and he died the death we deserved to die. And he conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered the grave and he paved the way to eternal life, eternal access that starts now. Not just one day when we die, but it starts now through the indwelling of his spirit who dwells with us from the, and changes and transforms us from the inside out, even now. So this means that something very real has happened in your heart and in your soul. You've been reborn. It means you've been fundamentally changed from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Not just coming. It's here. Not fully and physically. That is coming. And we just talked about that a little bit. He's, we're going to get there. Right? And yet it already is here. We talk about this. So this doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin. It does mean, though, that we're not identified by that sin. That's the only way that we can really fight sin in the first place, honestly, is, is, is we put to death sin. Colossians is going to talk to this in the next passage. But the reason we put sin to death isn't so we can be saved. That's not so we can be identified with Christ. We do it because we already are saved. It's because we already are identified with Christ. Because sin hinders intimacy with him. Right? And our greatest weapon against sin is stubbornness. No. It's not. Your greatest weapon against sin is living in an experience of the new reality and your identity and the love of God in Jesus Christ. So being raised with Christ is talking about your new reality. This newness of life, this new identity. You're not rising in Christ. We are not rising church. Right? We're not striving in order to be risen one day. You're risen now in Christ. It's who we are. It's something we're trying to do. It's a truth we operate out of. Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 6. But God. Say, but God. He's just been talking about sin. He's just been talking about trespass. He's just been talking about the, the wages and the death that's deserved. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, past tense, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Past tense. Some of you are like, I'm not seated with Christ, I'm seated in the water table. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm in a chair right now, this is not... No. If you're in Christ, you're seated with him in heavenly places. You need to understand this. I want you to get this. You need to get this. There's so much to unpack in regards to your positional authority in Christ. Just in this passage right here. But, like You've been given authority to make disciples. All of you. If you're in Christ, every one of you have been given authority to make disciples from the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. 
You are heirs. You are sons and daughters of the Most High King. You are citizens of an eternal kingdom that is growing and expanding and will one day manifest fully and physically upon the earth. It's called the kingdom of God or, or the kingdom of heaven. It's called the new Jerusalem. It's called the new creation. And those who have been reborn and spiritually raised to this new life in Christ receive this authority and receive this identity as royal sons and daughters of the Most High King. The royal priesthood of all believers. Some serious identity in this. 1 Peter 2.9 But you... Say, me. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may, there's a purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I think most people have a decent grasp, maybe, kind of, you know, we're watching Downton Abbey and stuff, of what royalty means, right? You get kind of a, a glimpse of this thing, kings and queens and stuff like that, and we kind of get an idea of what royalty means. But what about being a priest? What is that about? What's a priest? A priest is a mediator between God and those who don't have access to his presence. A priest has been granted access to God's presence and is empowered to go and tell those who don't have that access about what they've experienced. That's a priest. If you're in Christ, that's you. You've been spiritually positioned to drink deeply from the river of life, which is Christ himself. Access to the only one who is truly and ultimately satisfying and then commissioned to go and tell and invite. To witness, to testify. This is your reality. And our great commission is to go and proclaim the excellencies of him we've tasted and seen. Our witness is as priests, sons and daughters, rescued and redeemed, beloved of God and lovers of God. And what do we proclaim? The good news of rules and regulations. No, the good news to come live perfectly like me. The good news to change your behavior and you can have life like I have if you change your behavior. Preach the gospel with your actions, right? Be good, boys and girls, and then people will be like, man, I wish I was awesome like you. That's a false gospel. That's works righteousness right? That's not what it's about. It's the good news of Jesus. He is the river of life that we drink from. He is our access to glory. He is the source of all ultimate satisfaction and pleasure. But when you're drinking from that which truly satisfies, you recognize how insufficient and disgusting the sinful counterfeits of this world actually are. Your life does look differently because you're drinking from the source and when you're drinking from the source, you realize that the rest of it's polluted with feces. Right? So, so if this is the access that we've been granted, if this is our reality, then the question then becomes, how then shall we live? In Luke 15, Jesus tells a parable about a man who had two sons. The youngest son is more interested in his inheritance than he is in his relationship with his father. So he asks for his share of the inheritance so he can go spend it on whatever he wants, which is essentially himself, okay? And so although it probably broke his dad's heart, his dad gives him what he asks for. And then, of course, he blows it all, and he finds himself living as a hired hand later, uh, feeding other people's pigs. And so his low point was when he found himself starving and longing to eat the pig's food. And he realized that at least his father's hired hands lived better than this. And so he goes back to apologize and ask if he could be hired on as one of his servants or hired hands. And he, you see, he realized that he had squandered his right to be a son. He had screwed up. But his dad sees him coming from a long way off. Which means that he's waiting and he's watching and he's longing for his son to come back to him. It's a glimpse of the father's heart. 
okay? This is a picture of God. And he sees his son. He's coming back home. And when he sees his boy, he runs to him. And he hugs him. And he kisses him. But the son, the son's ashamed. The son says, no, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And you know what? He's right. He's right. But the father has something to teach his boy about sonship. And he wraps him in the best robe and he gives him nice shoes. He would have been like a homeless beggar at this point. And he puts that ring that symbolized his official status as a son of inheritance on his finger. And he says, go get the fattened calf and kill it so they can eat and celebrate. And in Luke 15, 24, it says this, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. He didn't say get out in the field and work hard. He didn't say stick around long enough and prove that you're worthy to be called my son. That's not sonship. That's slavery. That's obligation. That's a hired hand. That self-righteous attempts to earn a title that can only be given. Meanwhile, the older brother was out working hard with the other employees or servants or hired hands. And he hears this celebration happening and he gets angry. So angry he won't even come to the party. In verse 28, Luke 15 verse 28 says but he was angry and he refused to go in. I'm not going to celebrate that worthless punk and his father came out and entreated him which is to see the love of the father for both of his sons which is to see his desire for them to enjoy one another and love one another as he loves them and to enjoy the father in the process remember jesus is telling this story to teach us something about the love of the father Verse 29 says this, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Notice that he doesn't include his father in the celebration. Right? Just his friends. His heart is far from his father. He's not concerned with the giver. He's just concerned with the gifts. You see this? He's missed it. And so he's trying to earn the gifts so that when he celebrates, he can celebrate himself and what he's done, not rejoicing with his dad over what they are building in their kingdom or their estate. Okay? He's not celebrating and enjoying the love and the grace of his father. But his older brother, he still doesn't get it, right? Like his, his, his brother, the younger brother, made the mistake, which is why he asked for his inheritance, and he squandered it away from the father. Still, he's not seeing the father. He wants to go live his life and enjoy the gifts, not the giver. But then he's recognized what he's done, and he's come to his senses, and he's come back and realized that his father's good. Now he sees and savors and enjoys the love and the grace of his father, but his older brother still doesn't get it. He's still acting like a hired hand. He's still refusing to enjoy the access that he has to his father. And so it's caused him to then be judgmental. It's caused him to be bitter and even trying to control the things around him. I'm not going in there. I'm not doing that. He's rejected his sonship for slavery. Verse 30. But when this son of yours, this is what he says to his dad. He says, but when this son of yours came, so he's like, I worked hard. I've done it. I've never even disobeyed you. He's missed the point. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see, this is what a religious spirit does. It misses the heart and it misses the point and it misses the relationship. The older brother thought life was found in obedience, but it wasn't. 
Life was found in relationship. Obedience is the result of a heart that enjoys the Father and loves what the Father loves. It trusts that the Father is good and has good in mind for him. That's true obedience. And it does it even when it's difficult. Like that's when obedience actually becomes worship. I heard someone say it like this. Love is root. Obedience is fruit. You see this? Love is root. Obedience is fruit. John 14 verse 15. Jesus says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you keep my commandments, you will love me. That doesn't mean that there is ever an excuse to disobey God, but you need to understand that obedience in itself does not cultivate love. It's love that cultivates true obedience. Only then can obedience actually be an offering of worship from the heart. In fact, the very next thing out of Jesus' mouth here in John 14, so he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then in verse 16, he says this, He starts talking about the Holy Spirit, and he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, on this side of Pentecost, or Acts 2, he dwells in you. That's a whole other sermon. It might be coming, though. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about love for God being the spirit-filled response of his love for us. That's when people talk to me. Like, I get this so much, man. I wish sometimes I could like get you in my head as a pastor and see. Like people come to me talking about how they're behaving all the time. And when they do, when they talk about their behavior, I'm likely, I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you, if you talk to me about your behavior, I'm probably gonna turn the conversation to what you're beholding. Does that make sense? A lot of people talk about what, how they're behaving. Jesus is looking at what are you beholding? Because beholding Jesus in joy always overflows in worship-filled behavior. Right? That's why repentance is a turning towards him. You're beholding sin. You're beholding lesser saviors. You're beholding lesser things that are not ultimately satisfying. And he says, repent, turn away from that and to me and behold me because I'm all satisfying. Right? And so this is why beholding Jesus in joy always overflows in worship-filled behavior. For those who are risen in Christ, it means that we've been granted access to God to enjoy him, to know him, to worship him, to seek and savor and be satisfied in him. Yes, we still steward the land. We still steward the estate and the kingdom and the calling. We work and we labor and we expand the kingdom and we sacrifice and we do all of these things. But we don't do it apart from him in order to earn something from him. We get to enjoy him in it all along the way because we care about what he cares about because we know he cares about us. We're loved by him and we love him and then we love the things that he loves as sons and daughters enjoying him all along the way and celebrating it, him in the process. This is the entire point of the cross and the resurrection. We've been granted access to him to enjoy him. And, don't miss this, not just to enjoy God, but also to be enjoyed by God. This is a hard one. This is a hard one for many people. Do you believe that he delights in you? Philippians 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. We rejoice in him. Delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 37, 4. Psalm 32, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord, right? Psalm 16, 11. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Psalm 16, verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Psalm 42, 1 through 2, yeah, 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. 
I stretch out my hands, says Psalm 143. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Romans 5.11, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. John 17.3, and this is eternal life, that we know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's all about him, his presence. Eternal life is amazing because of the joyful and abundant life in knowing and being known by and enjoying and being enjoyed by the all-satisfying King of eternity, the lover of my soul, right? This is what it's all about. So when we read these passages even, and we're going to get to this, these passages, they're all, like you may have noticed as I'm reading them, they're all about us delighting in him, right? All of those passages, you might have noticed that. You might have been like, well, that's not about him delighting in me. You might be sitting here thinking, that's not what it says. Hold on to that. If you think that's what the word says, we're going to get there. It's kind of intentional. We live in a world, though, that would take our eyes off the reality that he is the all-satisfying king of eternity. We love him because he first loved us. Right? We live in a world, though, that wants us to lose sight of the lover of our soul. It's a world that would take our eyes off the reality of our identity and our position in him, and so we don't enjoy him. We live in a fallen world filled with temptations that would present themselves as more satisfying than the delight of God, which is why we're given these two imperatives. Verse 1 and 2, here we go. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek, say seek, the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then verse 2, set, say set. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. The language is extremely active and intentional. If then you've been raised with Christ, kick back, relax, and kind of go with the flow of this world. You know, just follow your heart. After all, if it feels good, it must be good, right? No. It's saying actively and intentionally seek out that which is of and from Christ, that which is good and flowing forth from the throne of God to intentionally seek and savor all the things, asking him, where are you in this, God? No matter what you're involved in, in this conversation, in this day, in this moment, what are you showing me? What is it that you care most about and what I'm doing? What is it that you enjoy most about what we're doing right now, God? How can I bring you the most joy and the most pleasure in my life right now? How can you delight in in this, how maybe a better question is how do you, how do you delight in this? I don't care if you're at the grocery store. He delights in you. He delights in your every breath. You know why? Because you're his. These are good questions. Like when you make your five-year plan for your life, the first question shouldn't be how can I make the most money? Your first question should be, how can I bring God the most glory? Right? Like, how can I leverage my life and my resources and my talents and my treasures for him? How can I seek? Say seek. How can I seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and trust that all else will be added unto me? Matthew 6. And enjoy God how can I enjoy him most in this process? Because it's not just about doing the right thing. It's about enjoying God and his righteousness. Even when it's difficult. Why? Because you're seeking that which is above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And according to Psalm 16 verse 11, in God's presence there is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Him are pleasures forevermore because He doesn't get the most glory when we slog through life in a legalistic, burdensome slog of regulations. He gets glory through a life that enjoys Him and is satisfied in Him above all else because it pleases Him and His pleasure becomes our greatest treasure. I want you to get that. 
For where your treasure is, your, there your heart will be also, says Matthew 6, 21. So we seek our ultimate satisfaction from that which is ultimately satisfying, Jesus. Or as John Piper famously puts it, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. So it's not just about what we do, it's about how we do it, joyfully, thankfully, worshipfully. You got to remember that when, when we are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not just arguing about who's right and who's wrong. Like we're introducing others to the majestic king of the universe, the one who saved us, the one we've tasted and savored and seen and seek and sing about, right? When you share the gospel, it should be an invitation to worship and a demonstration of worship. Like don't just share the gospel with people, sing it over them. Like, when I get the opportunity to talk about Jesus, especially with people who are far from him or don't know him, like, by the time it's over, whether they've accepted it or him as Lord and Savior or not, my soul is soaring. Because I'm thinking about how good he is. It's a worship fest when I get to talk about Jesus. And, and, then, and often, you know what? People are like, wow, you really believe this. Yeah, shocker. Right? Why? Because I'm beholding the king and inviting them to do the same. Because I'm in partnership with him, the author of the universe, to bring his children back to him. I just get to testify. He's the one that convinces. Right? Because I know he's pleased with me. And I sense his love for them and it washes everything else away. So we don't just share this life in Christ again. We sing it. We rejoice in it. We delight in him and let him delight in us because we delight in his delight. Isn't that delightful? This is how we become an oasis in the desert. We just sang about it. This is how living waters overflow, which speaks again to the second imperative. Set. Say set. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Isaiah 26 verse 3 says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That word for peace here is the word shalom. It's a word that means wholeness, fullness, restored. Like when we set our mind, when we set it firm like a brick and mortar, when you set it on the things of Jesus, all is put in its proper place. And then peace rules and reigns in our hearts and souls. Philippians 4 puts it like this, verse 4 through 9. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Say rejoice. rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That means reach out and take advantage of the access you have. Right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, because you have access to him. With thanksgiving, because you have access to him. Let your requests be made known to God, because you have access to him. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. There's an active seeking. Do you see it? There's an act of seeking and setting happening here. He's calling them to intentionally set their minds on the things that are above the things that are of God. The things that are at the right hand where there are pleasures forevermore in his presence. This is Jesus. That's who he is. He is life. But again, it's not just about the gifts, right? It's about the giver. The point here is that all of these things are designed to draw our hearts to the giver, to the Father of lights from whom every good and perfect gift is given, according to James 1. But if you'd rather have the gifts than the giver, then you've missed the point entirely. If you lose the gifts and then hate the giver, you've missed the point. That's called idolatry. 
And it always ends in simply longing for the pig slop of this world every single time. Because ultimately, it was never fully satisfying anyway. You're not designed for pig food. You're not pigs. Right? So this is what it's talking about. Because ultimately, it was, it's not satisfying. It's all just fickle and insecure. It was a shadow of truth, a shadow of true soul satisfaction, which only comes in Christ alone. John 10, verse 10, Jesus says this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life. You know, another way to say that is that I came that they may have Jesus and have Jesus abundantly. The life that we were designed and created for is life with him, even in him. So what are we then to seek and set our minds on? Jesus. Jesus. Sunday school answer. Jesus. Right? And some of you may have thought the answer is the Bible. Maybe you thought, surely, he's going to say that we should set our minds on God's word and study it and memorize it. His law, his rules, you know, like that which he's designed for our good, which he did. And it is. And praise God for his law. But God's law does not delight in you. God's law does not love you. God's law does not enjoy you. And God's law cannot save you. Again, hear this. A lot of reactions in our world over this one. That doesn't mean that God's law isn't good. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't delight in God's law. We should. It's amazing. And it's designed for our good. But again, God's law isn't life. Jesus is. God's law can't save you. Jesus can. The truth is, is that it's through God's law that we realize we're condemned and we don't measure up. Which is how it points us to Jesus. Jesus even said in John 5, verse 39 through 40, he said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. But how good is it if you search the scriptures and let them point you to Jesus? Because in the scriptures, the scriptures are good. I hope you've realized that we love the word of God here, right? Scripture is good. It's how we even know who Jesus is. It's how we know about his character. It's how we know the difference between the spaghetti monster in the sky and the true king of the universe. Does that make sense? This is who he is. And we understand how he loves us and that we are his children. So we read his word, we love his word, we memorize it, we discuss it, but not because having knowledge of the scripture saves you, but because it points you to the only one who can. The scripture and the law is not itself life. Jesus is life. So as your pastor... I know I've drilled this home, but I, I'm going to say it again. As your pastor, my hope and my prayer is that you would dive into God's word, but that it would point you to a lived and real experience of his presence and his person and his purpose. That's why when I pray so much, I, I pray we open his word that our hair would be blown back by his very present Holy Spirit. In him there is eternal life. So hear me. Again, especially if you've experienced chaos in our world or unpredictable environments or, or like instability, right? You know, maybe more than others, how God's law can and should be a major comfort to you. When sin is indulged and God's laws are rejected, chaos, confusion, and destruction reign. God's law can become a lifeline for stability and order. And if you've been a victim of chaos or rebellion of others against God, then you know just how comforting obedience actually is and how threatening disobedience can be to your life. It can make you feel insecure and vulnerable. But while God's law is good, it cannot save you and it cannot love you and it does not delight in you. And so again, we can delight in his law, but God's law doesn't delight in you. In fact, if God's law is your functional God and your Savior... 
there will likely be a sense of rejection and shame that you carry because deep down you know that you're not good enough. That's the older brother's religious spirit. Constantly trying to prove his sonship while acting like a hired hand and never looking to the delight of his father. Maybe even feeling like it's wrong to think that his father delights in him. That's legalism. That's the religious spirit. Now this thing is sneaky. We talked about it last week. Because you can have a theology that rejects legalism with your brain and still operate in that religious spirit and that performance-oriented older brother attitude. So how do you know if this is a struggle? Well, it's actually pretty simple. It doesn't have to be your identity, but it can be our struggle. And you know that there might be some symptoms of this thing if you have trouble accepting God's love for you. If you have trouble in accepting that he delights in you, that he enjoys you. Hear this. To the extent that you have trouble accepting his delight in you is the extent to which you struggle with legalism and a religious spirit. But I have good news. The grace of God is sufficient even for you. Amen? That might be news, or it might be a simple reminder. Do you believe he delights in you? Do you believe that he enjoys you? Do you believe he sings over you? Do you delight in his delight? Do you enjoy his enjoyment of you? And that religious spirit might be countering this and saying, yeah, but isn't that all just self-worship? Like, doesn't God, like, God doesn't worship us. We worship him. That's true. God doesn't worship us, and it is not about you. And yet, 1 John 4.10 is clear, and this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation or the atonement for our sins. The cross is the declaration that he delights in you. He loves you. He wants you. It's God's love for us that is the foundation and starting point for our relationship with him. Everything flows from his love for us, not our love for him. Zephaniah 3, verse 17. Look at this. Zephaniah 3, verse 17. The Lord, listen to this. Drink this and memorize this one. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you. This is Old Testament prophesying about the Messiah. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Say gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Say love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Say sing. God sings over you? He's what? The greatest joy I have is knowing that I'm enjoyed by God. I bring him joy? That's amazing. The risen church, you bring him joy. He enjoys you. He enjoys time with you. He delights in you. Do you believe that? If not, then you're missing the very spark of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, I want you to know, and I want you to feel that God loves and enjoys you. There's a book that Sam Storms recently wrote called The Singing God. Might have influenced a little bit on me recently. I'm, I'm soaking it up. But it says this. Here's a quote from him. He says, The one thing that gives us hope, the one thing that conquers despair and brings strength for the struggle, is the assurance that no matter how bad the problem may be, God loves us. Pain becomes bearable and tomorrow no longer terrifies when your soul is touched with the reality of God's delight in you. Guys, as your pastor, I want you to behave. I do. I really do. Because I love God and I love you. 
But way more than that, way more than I want you to behave, I want you to behold Him and enjoy Him. Behavior is, 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 is just fruit. This is the root. Look back with me at verse 3. Colossians 3, verse 3 says this, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is concept of being hidden with Christ in God is this expression of deep security. I'm going to read um, three quick psalms, some passages from uh, three different psalms here, real quick, just so you can get this idea of what it means to be hidden in God. Okay, or in Christ. It's talking about this. Psalm 27, verse 5 through 6. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Why? Because I'm hidden in him. Psalm 31, verse 19 through 20. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and, uh, and worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Psalm 46, verse 1 through 3, one of my favorites. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. Which means pause and pray and ponder and get this in your heart, that he is your refuge and you're hidden in him. The idea of being hidden with Christ in God means your joy is no longer dependent upon your circumstances. It means our joy isn't determined by our ability or inability to measure up, but simply his declaration that we are his. We are loved. And the response to that is to love him back. And so we hide ourselves in that everlasting security, that everlasting joy, and that everlasting life, which is ours in Christ Jesus. It's enjoying him and being enjoyed by him in every circumstance. That's what abundant life is like. Verse 4. Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, last verse, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is what I was talking about before. This is talking about that second coming of Jesus. It's the physical return of the Savior King when we no longer need to be intentionally, actively seeking and setting our minds on that which is above because the spiritual new life that we walk in now is manifest physically everywhere, even here. That which is above comes down and manifests physically. Terra firma, new creation, new Jerusalem, city of God, full throttle. Let's go, Right? This is our certain hope, but it's our hope both now and for the future. And I love the language here. When Christ, who is your life, it almost doesn't make sense. Like, how does that work? It's trying, the unity there, the power, the intimacy. He is your life. He's your everything. He's your all in all. Is everything in your life secured in the grace and sovereign care of King Jesus this is abundant life and secure hope, and it's for us now and in the future. So practically, what does it look like to enjoy God even now as we await for that glorious day? What does it look like to enjoy God in this life and in the next? I, I asked this question to our community group this week, and um, here are a few responses of what it looks like to enjoy God, all right? One person said, just being in the moment with God. Right? Just being aware of his presence in every circumstance. It's so good, and it's so true. It looks like being still and listening. It, it, it doesn't always look like cramming your brain with information. I do enjoy that. And I, and I, I hope you do too, because it helps us to understand who he is more. Right? But if you're just cramming your brain, and then you're just off to the next thing, you've missed the point. Praise him. Talk to him. Walk with him. Put those things into practice. And that often means simply resting in him and enjoying him and soaking in his presence. Like walking and talking with him. Go down the beach, right? Just even silently enjoying and being enjoyed by him. Guys, that's not just for introverts. That's for everybody. You know? And often when you're walking down the beach, you, you know, maybe, maybe you have your phone there and think it's on speaker, but you're just talking to God. It's all right. 
So it's, it, again, it's acknowledging throughout the day and everything that we do, it's listening, it's talking, it's reading, it's praying, it's worshiping through music and worshiping him through simply breathing. <laughs> you know why? Because he delights in you. He sings over you. Breathe in, breathe out. Maybe even think about it this way. Breathe him in, breathe yourself out. Sweet aroma. Because that's what he does with you. Except he doesn't breathe himself out. Unless it's to you, I guess that's how that works. It's acknowledging him again. It's delighting in his delight. It's learning about him, yes, but way more important than that is simply getting to know him more and more. And that happens through interactive relationship. Another way someone brought up was by putting the flesh to death. Like resisting sinful desires just because God's worth it. I love that. Like there's such a practical way of experiencing and enjoying God. He's better. He's worthy. There's a lot of delight and deep joy in that. It's like I want this, but I want you more. You can feel his pleasure in that. Like another one was enjoying God by watching him work in other people's lives. Whoo! Like it may be, that may be one of my favorites, especially when he gives you the honor of participating in that growth. Maybe you've been praying for somebody, or maybe you've even given them some kind of encouragement, and you get to catch a glimpse of God's heart in these things and to watch people fall deeper in love with God and grow in their relationship with him, and you get to be a part of that. That's amazing. Like I'd love to pray for people and then watch him answer those prayers. That's why we like for you to fill out these prayer and praise cards. It's our, it's, it's our joy, right? And so we watch him answer, and it's like inviting us into what he's doing in each other. It's almost like he wants us to share life in Christ with each other or something. And so I, I love when he breaks through in power, too, right? Just to show us that he's got this whole thing under control, and he's sovereign, and he's miraculous, and he's supernatural. Happens all the time. I enjoy it, Right? One of the most joyful things about walking with Jesus is asking him what he thinks of others. Hear this. I want to encourage you to do this. Ask God not just what he thinks of you, but what he thinks about other people. And then go and tell them. It could be as simple as encouraging someone with a thought that popped into your head. Sometimes it's just uplifting, but there are times when that small spark of encouragement carries the prophetic weight of the Holy Spirit who sees them and knows them and loves them and lets them know about it through you. Woo! Happens all the time. Happened to me the other day. Messed my world up. I loved it. So I want to close here with a dream um, that my uh, daughter recently had. And I, I think it illustrates the joy of knowing Jesus and seeking that which is above really well. My six-year-old daughter, okay? She had this dream, and I'm going to try and tell it exactly the way she told it to me, okay? <laughs> she said, I was in the desert. This is her dream. So I was putting her down. We're in the bed together, and she's just, she was like, oh, I'm a little bit, I had, I had a, a dream last night. And she was like, it wasn't really a nightmare. It was scary, but it ended really good, you know? So I was like, oh, tell me about it. And so she goes, I, I was in the desert, and the devil was in front of me. He, he was all black with red eyes and a red cape, and he had a big black sword, and he started chasing me. But then God gave me a knife, and I started sword fighting with him. <laughs> then I dropped the knife, but God gave it back to me, and he gave me a lightsaber, and I stabbed the devil in the booty. <laughs> she laughed at that part. I was, I'm just at this point sitting on the bed in stunned silence like, what? Then she said, God put his whole power on the devil like this. And she starts pressing down. And then the devil turned into a lot of snakes everywhere in the desert. But then all the snakes died and they turned into flowers. Get this image. And then the desert was filled with pools. And suddenly there were all our family, our whole family was there. And she starts specifically naming our family and extended family, people she loves a lot. And then she said, we were all laughing and we were talking. And then Jesus suddenly came down and we knew it because we heard him when he came down behind us because God is heavy. <laughs> and here's the best part. 
She said, as soon as we saw him, we all ran to him to hug him. And she jumped out of the bed and to show me how fast she ran to Jesus to hug him. Part of me was like, it's bedtime. The other part was like, this is awesome, right? <laughs> so there's, this is, that was the end of the dream. There's so much spiritual significance in this dream. Like even how the snakes turn into flowers and then pools in the middle of the desert. Like there's such the picture of captives being released and redeemed and becoming oasis in the desert and pools of living water and a dry land. There's so much in this that my six-year-old has no clue about. But God gave her this dream and it was beautiful. But this is what struck me most is how excited she was to run to Jesus. Like, Jesus is who she was created for. He's the very essence of all that's good and glorious and righteous. And if you're free, why would you run to anything or anyone else? The truth is that if you're running to anything or anyone but Jesus, that isn't a symptom of your freedom. It's a symptom of your slavery. This is the joy of true repentance and belief, running to Jesus, on mission with Jesus, enjoying Jesus, not just one day when we die, but right now. And yet, he's only proven that it does get better and better and better and better. The more I know him, the better it gets. The deeper in and higher up we go. This is our present and our eternal hope, and we are secure in Jesus. To truly enjoy life, though, You must truly enjoy Jesus. Let's pray.